from Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Friday, October the 30th, 2020, and we have a good full show lined up for you today. We're going to uh, hear from Secretary of State Jim Condos about a little exchange with the U.S. Supreme Court this week. Very interesting uh, discussion about the wording of a... uh, of an opinion written by uh, Brett Kavanaugh, the second newest justice on the court this week. Uh, we're going to hear all about uh, a request for a correction uh, that uh, Secretary Condos made of the Supreme Court after reading what uh, Secretary Kavanaugh had written and whether the Supreme Court got it right the second time. Uh, well, uh, let's see, in the um, latter hour of the program this morning, we're going to be speaking with uh, Dave Zuckerman, the uh, Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor, and he'll be filling us in on uh, where he sees the campaign shaping up with just, uh, I guess, uh, about four days to go before the uh, November 3rd election day. And then, um, oh, I meant to mention in the second half hour of the program, we're going to be speaking with uh, David Van Dusen. He is uh, president of the Vermont AFL-CIO, the Labor Federation. Uh, there's talk there of a possible general strike if uh, this election that we have coming up uh, for president of the United States really goes off the rails. Uh, organized labor may try to do something very, which is very unusual in the United States. Happens occasionally in Europe, but uh, it would be uh, really quite something here in the U.S. So we'll be hearing from uh, David Van Dusen in the second half hour about what all that might uh, might entail. But uh, first, let's bring in Secretary of State Jim Condos, who uh, again uh, had a had a really uh, interesting exchange uh, this week with the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, uh, Secretary Condos, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. Thank you. Four days left. Still election day. <laughs> do you, hey, do you get a vacation when it's all over? <laughs> uh, actually, uh, my elections team and I uh, will be, we have about 50 days or so, uh, along with the town clerks, of cleanup of the election process after the election. So oh, yeah. our work is yeah. ahead. Uh, and, then, and then, of course, the legislature starts up. So you don't just fly to the Caribbean on the night of November 3rd or anything? No. <laughs> okay. Not at all. That's too bad. <laughs> well, anyway, because I know you guys and the town clerks and the city clerks have been, uh, shall we say, uh, <clears throat> busting it uh, for uh, uh, some months now, getting ready for all of this. And uh, Dave, uh, must Dave, be... I do... Yeah, Dave, I, I want to really I wanna thank the town clerks across the state of Vermont because they have been really awesome uh, they have paid attention. They have worked diligently hard. They know the elections process. My team, my elections team, has worked with them literally every day, taking hundreds of calls over over the time. Uh, and I always say that our, our, our municipal town clerks, city and town clerks, are some of the hardest-working municipal officials we have. All right. Well, big shout out there for those folks. So, uh, and I, uh, I, I, I concur. Uh, you know, I, as a reporter for years for the Associated Press, I had more than, had many occasions to go in to have to see a town clerk about asking for some kind of records or something or just, uh, to find out uh, something about the voter checklist or whatever. And I, and it really is a, it's a service oriented profession. People are ready to help when you go into their offices. And, uh, uh, at least that's always the, uh, the ethos that I ran into. And, uh, 
and hats off. So there you go. Hey, um, Secretary Condos, uh, I was mentioning in the intro that you had a little, a very unusual experience this week, I must say. Uh, first, Vermont's election procedures got a mention. Now, what, what was the context of this mention? It was an, it was, a, it was a, uh, a concurring opinion by Kavanaugh in another, in, a, in an election-related uh, ruling by the Supreme Court. Uh, yes, it was, and it had to do with Wisconsin uh, and their dead uh, their deadline for uh, ballot receipts. They were actually um, uh, a lower court had a, had a, uh, mandated that they could accept. Uh, I forget what it was. Six days after uh, a postmark of election day, uh, and that that was challenged to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court. Um, basically overruled and said no you can't do that it is only up up to that time and then in the in his concurring decision um opinion he justice kavanaugh wrote that um, that some states like vermont have not made even in the eyes of the pandemic have not made any uh significant changes to their um to their election laws and that was flat out wrong. I mean, we've made some significant changes, uh, and and in relation to the discussion of the postmark or, or the deadline of, of, of ballot receipts, he, he then changed when when we sent our letter in. He then changed his thing by adding the one word, and it was election deadline rather than just election, uh, and it still really doesn't meet the test of the context of how that was all worded uh so in any case uh, you know it was we didn't really expect anything to happen but uh we were pleasantly surprised that he at least rectified uh, you know part of his his uh, decision um you know we did make significant changes we did not extend the deadline for receipt and we felt we because of the other changes we made we didn't have to and those other changes were simple uh, we, we direct mailed the ballot, uh, out to, uh, voters, uh, by the, we started, we ended the mailing on October 1st, so fully 30 days ahead of time. Those, those ballot envelopes included a return envelope that was postage paid to come back, making it as easy as possible. So the voters actually had about 30 days to get their ballots back, to vote those ballots and get them back. Um, and, and then we also allowed town clerks the ability to um, process those ballots uh, in a secure, confidential, and uh, 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 way that uh, maintained the integrity of the elections under strict protocols uh, to process those at least 30 days, up to 30 days ahead of time. So those three things that I just mentioned led us to believe that we did not need to extend the deadline. We talked about it, but we decided not to do it. We were trying to limit the amount of changes that we were making to the election process. Sure. And uh, I, I just want to, if I can put it maybe a little a little more in a straightforward fashion, I read over both attempts here by Justice Kavanaugh, and they are both wrong. I mean, they're just, they don't have the facts correct. And uh, it's sort of like, I mean, I, mean, I, I uh, it's sort of like somebody putting up a shot in basketball, uh, missing, getting his, his or her own rebound, putting it up again and missing again. 
that's basically, it seems to me, to be what happened here. Um, and uh, I just want to read the uh, the two attempts here by Justice Kavanaugh. In the initial um in the initial concurring opinion issued this week, he wrote, Other states, such as Vermont, by contrast, have decided not to make changes to their ordinary election rules, including to the election day deadline for receipt of absentee ballots. Okay. So, uh, I mean, he got part of that right in the sense that uh, it is true that Vermont did not make changes to its election day deadline for receipt of absentee ballots. But the part where he says have decided not to make changes to their ordinary election rules, as you just pointed out, uh, at some length, uh, Secretary Condos, uh, that's wrong. Vermont did make several changes to its ordinary election rules. Um, the... Uh, the, the new opinion, his second attempt, said, other states such as Vermont, by contrast, have decided not to make changes to their ordinary election day, election deadline rules, including to the election day deadline for receipt of absentee ballots. And, um, this, uh, you know, now that I read it over again, it's actually closer. Um, the, uh, I mean, he could argue, I suppose, here that ordinary election deadline rules refers specifically to this um, this uh, November 3rd deadline, the election day deadline. But on the other hand, then it, then it becomes redundant, where he, where he then adds, including to the election day deadline for receipt of absentee ballots. So it, it turns to sort of mush here. But it actually, I mean, he could argue that he he now he now he said it twice. Uh, maybe he did jam the ball through the hoop the second time. I don't know, but <laughs> if so, it looks like uh, now now it looks like offensive goaltending. <laughs> <laughs> if you like, if you like my basketball metaphor here, but I mean it, it it it's it does it does not acknowledge here at all that Vermont has made these changes you've talked about. Uh, I mean he could have just said he could have skipped some of the verbiage here and said have decided not to make changes. Uh, <clears throat> other states such as Vermont, by contrast, have decided not not to make changes to their election day deadline for receipt of absentee ballots. If he, if he kept it simple like that, it would have been a clear correction, and he would have had it. But I think uh, I'm, I'm giving him at least, at best, a, you know, a, a, a half attempt here or something. I don't know. Hey, uh, I, I want to uh, mention we have a listener on the line calling in. 244-1777 is the local number in Waterbury. Uh, 244, I gave you that one, 244-1777. The toll-free number is 1-877-291-8255 or 291-TALK. And I believe we have uh, Sheila who's calling in from, is it Barrytown? Yes, good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a question for Secretary Condos uh, in relation to the certificate envelope. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, the certificate envelope says uh, you must complete and sign the certificate above, which is that box, including your name, where you're supposed to print your name, include the city or town, your signature and date. Now, must all of that certificate be, be filled out in order for it to be considered um, valid? Uh, well, they have to be able to read your name, obviously. Um, so the uh, the name, I would say, printing your name and and the signature are the most important parts. And I think I would leave it to the clerks uh, how they will handle that. But uh, I think they're they've been instructed if you don't date it, you're going to be fine. Okay, because it says you must complete and sign the certificate above and place 
your ballot into this envelope or your vote will not count. It says it several places here. Yep. To me, is the certificate that they're referring to this entire box, including all four of those spots, name, town, signature, of course, and date? Uh, and other, what's the yes, law say? Yes, no. yes and no. I mean, I, I, you're, 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 uh, I, I, what we're really concerned about, obviously, is the name and the signature. That's those are the piece and the town that you're supposed to be voting in, obviously. But uh, if someone were just to sign it and, and nobody can tell by the signature whose ballot it is, uh, who what the name says, because I mean I've seen some signatures that you can't read, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, if you can't tell that, and that's the only thing they did was sign it. Uh, I, I don't believe that they're going to accept that because they don't know who to assign that ballot vote to. So the signature obviously has to be legible, not just a mark, as some people mark with an X or a check mark or something or a squiggle. That's their mark. No, I, I didn't say that. I, the signature the signature has to be a signature, and the, the name has to be legible where you print your name uh, at, at the top. And... and uh, uh, I think we've. Been, uh, I don't have the uh, exact rules in front of me, but I believe that we have told the. Uh, um, uh, so we used to require. Uh, I, my my elections director is just uh, texting me, and he just said that uh, uh, that you just have to sign it and make sure that we can read it, uh, and anything else is uh, uh, okay if you, if you don't have that filled out. Because some of these ballots, of course, that went out in the mass mailing, uh, the certificate envelope on the backside has the printed name with the barcode. Right. So that's one way to tell who it is. But some of the ballots went out, they were requested directly from the town clerk's office after that cutoff date, so they don't include the pre-printed name with the barcode. So in that, that case, someone correct. would need to put their printed name on the front of that, I would imagine. Correct. So uh, in so, Sheila, here's what, what's going to happen after this, this election's over. Uh, we're going to sit down with the town clerks, uh, a group of them uh, that will represent a broad, broad stroke of, of Vermont, and we're going to have the discussion to debrief what worked, what didn't, what can we do to improve things. For instance, I will tell you right now, we're looking at the possibility of highlighting the signature box so that it really stands out to make sure that that signature box uh uh, that people understand they have to sign this. We're also going to work with this, uh, the um, Center for Civic De- Design, which does user-friendly looks at, at government uh, uh, design uh, uh, of all kinds of things, websites, uh, letterhead, things like that. And we're going to work with them to see if we how we can improve that certificate envelope to make it more um, user-friendly to the public uh, and, 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 you know, we're, we're taking this seriously, and, and we want to do the right thing. We want to expand the right to the vote to everybody that's eligible. Uh, and, and so we will look at how we can do this to reduce uh, any number of, of defective ballots that we might get. I do have one other real quick question having to do with drop boxes, because I know some towns were supplied with them or they have their own drop box. Um, on this certificate envelope, it says it must be received before the close of the office on the day before the election if you're delivering it to the town office yourself. Otherwise, on the day of the election, it's got to be delivered uh, to the polling place to the election official. Is that correct? Well, that is correct, but, but uh, the, 
the clerks will be visiting all their their offices. It's not all, all the voting uh, polls are are out, are in the offices, so they will be sending someone back to their office to check for any mail that may have come in and for and to check their drop boxes to make sure that no mail has been deposited. Okay, so anything in a drop box on the day of the election up through seven o'clock p.m. Uh, are going to be counted. Correct. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for the call, Sheila. Thanks. You're welcome. Hey. Um, uh, I got a couple questions uh, sort of following up with uh, Sheila's questions. Uh, there, there is a, uh, a drop box behind Montpelier City Hall, and I noticed that sign, too, that said it had to be uh, the day before the election was the final day for using the drop box. Will, will the drop box be removed or locked up or something um, uh, on, on Election Day, and so that you'll be directed then to uh, head into the actually head inside the building to cast your ballot in, the, in Montpelier's case? I don't know what Montpelier plans to do. Um, but I think that uh, um, I, I, I believe that uh, they will maintain that drop box right through uh, the election day and then check that box to see. Montpelier, in Montpelier, I live in Montpelier myself. Montpelier mm-hmm. has, has a mail slot as well on the back of the building uh, where people can put their tax payments and water bills payments and things like that. Uh, yep. So some people may use that and some people may use the actual drop box itself. Uh, you know, we have about 175 drop boxes around the state, um, and I know the city of Burlington, for instance, has three of them uh, at three choice locations. Uh, and and uh, you know, it's it's we have we we supplied those to any um, uh, town that wanted one, and they could put they could do a mail. It was up to them what they wanted. Do they want a mail slot installed? Do they want a wall mounted? drop box inside their lobby uh, or did they want a, a standalone outside uh, it, it, and there were criteria for each of those uh, as far as security pur- uh, purposes we have a caller who says she's fired up Marsha from Barry good morning Marsha morning good 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 morning to the both both of you thank you uh, you too a quick comment first of all about Justice Cab Kavanaugh the, his mm-hmm. sloppy writing, the issue is due to his clerks. His clerks are doing a bad job, but this reflects on him, and this reflects all the way back on the people who nominated and voted for him. And this is the caliber of what we get, and this is why elections matter, insofar as the, as the ballot. I have been do, 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 doing this for years because I'm illegally... Lines and I've got to do and I've got to vote 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 by mail and I order my ballots from my clerk and on and in other elections my name is printed on the certificate and my city is printed on the certificate and also on the return envelope in this election yes I I have got to fill in all of the blanks and I've respectfully disagree with Secretary because um, I think each fill-in is equally important because it's important to to print your voter's name so that it's a basis of comparison with the signature in case the signature is is hard to read. And the city is important. Perhaps the date is not quite as important because it's the receipt of the ballot which counts. But 
this is not hard. If I can do it, and I'm mm-hmm. leg- legally blind, just just sit down, take, take, sit down and take your time and read it and fill in the, the blanks. And I don't think any particular thing is any more important. It's just making everybody crazed to think yeah. that one, one thing is more important than another. This is not bad. And I wish I oh, had lots of luck because it's the counting that's going to be hard. Yeah. And I, and I totally, I am thrilled that he was able to make the corrections. And thank you very much for his service. All right. Thank you, um, uh, Marsha. And uh, Jim Condos, one, one question about signatures, which is uh, people's signatures can evolve over time. If you know, if, if, if I look at my signature that I, I would use in my early 20s, I'm sure it's a little different from what I'm using these days. And um, uh, what about that? What about somebody whose signature has changed a little bit from the time they first registered to vote? Is that what they're going with, or how does that work uh, if they want to compare signatures? So we don't compare it. Vermont is not a signature comparison state. We don't, the signature is there as your affirmation, you as the voter, or your affirmation that you've not been influenced, you haven't voted more than once, et cetera, et cetera. The, okay. In, in other states, there are some states that do require signature verification. And this is uh, something that is actually talked about quite frequently with my colleagues across the country. Uh, and, and I think there was recently a court decision about the court, about uh, accepting the uh, signatures as well. Um, I haven't actually read it yet. Uh, been a little bit busy with the election itself. But it, yeah. but I think that I think that the problem is you're exactly right. The, your signature will change over time. It'll change just because time has gone by, but it'll also change as you get older and and. Uh, uh, I think you you said it clearly, Dave. I mean, you and I had a different signature when we were 20 years old. I had a different signature when I was 40 years old. Yeah. Now I'm yep. 50 years old, and I, I have a different signature again. And and it does evolve over time. Uh, Secretary Condos, I hate to stop you there, but uh, we. <laughs> We're about out of time, I'm sorry to say. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. It's always great chatting. All right. And by the way, we've had 235,000 voters already. Wow. Already, uh, bottom of the hour break for some CBS News, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. I was going through some uh, press releases the other day that popped into my email box, and uh, I saw a really uh, striking uh, headline from the uh, Vermont AFL-CIO. It said, Vermont AFL-CIO to hold general strike authorization vote in event of political coup. And... uh, 
that sort of caught my eye. I must say, I said, uh, well, maybe I'll get Dave Van Dusen on the air to talk about what that means and uh, what uh, what these labor activists have in mind. And so, uh, sure enough, David Van Dusen joins us this morning. He's president of the uh, Vermont uh, Labor Federation, the AFL-CIO. And uh, David, uh, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Thanks for inviting me today, Dave. And uh, so explain what you have in mind here. Uh, first off, um, uh, let's talk about what you mean by a, let's take the second the second uh, kind of a, uh, striking phrase here first, and that is political coup. Uh, define political coup to me. Look, we take it seriously when our own Senator Bernie Sanders is beating the drum, saying that there's uh, a good chance or a reasonable chance that even if Joe Biden wins this election outright, Donald Trump will seek to retain power. So when Bernie Sanders says this in public, we take it uh, as a grave warning. How can he do this? Well, if Biden wins on Tuesday, we already know that the Republicans in Pennsylvania and in a number of other states where they control the majority of the legislature are considering sending Republicans uh, as delegates to Electoral College, even if the voters in their state vote for Joe Biden. That is one form a coup could take. Uh, We also take Donald Trump at his word when on multiple occasions in public, he has stated very clearly that he uh, will not necessarily commit to a peaceful transfer of power. He has said over and over again that the only way he can lose is through quote-unquote, voter fraud in a rigged election. Meanwhile, the national polls sell him down by 8%, give or take, uh, nationally, and losing the majority of the battleground states. So Trump is signaling in every possible way that he will fight tooth and nail to retain power even if he loses the election. And let's not forget that the first debate, he also told uh, neo-fascist, our neo-fascist organization to stand by. So we're concerned. We're concerned for the future of our democracy. And we are making very clear that the Vermont AFL-CIO will do its part to defend democracy, along with allies and supporters of the basic uh, principles of the democratic process, uh, if called upon uh, by the political circumstances. So uh, the other uh, critical sort of phrase in the in the um, uh, headline here that I saw in your press release was general strike. Now, when I think general strike, I usually think of something which happens uh, more often in Europe when basically all organized workers, everybody who's a member of a union, and of course union membership is much higher in Europe than it is in the United States, uh, they they all go out on strike at the same time, regardless of the of the particular industries they are in, and so on. Uh, obviously, designed to, uh, and even there, it's an extreme case, but it's designed to, to reflect extreme dissatisfaction with the uh, course, usually of government, uh, by uh, sort of the masses of people. Um, is, 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 am I when I when I think of the European style general strike, am I on to the, am I on the right track there, Dave? Uh, in some regards, yes. But here's an important point to, to highlight. In France, mm-hmm. union density is about 10%. It's on par with what union density is in the United States as a whole. And 
they have had serious general strikes, a number of them, over the last decade, let alone historically. So when we, if and when we call for a general strike, we will not be limiting our call just to our 10,000 members. We will be asking for all Vermont unions to abide by the picket lines. And all workers, regardless of in your in a union or not, to stand with us and throw their tools down and walk out and take to the streets. Now that's unprecedented. I understand that uh, in the state of Vermont. I understand that we have not done that before, and I understand the many challenges that we would have in organizing that. But what we also need to understand is that a political coup in our country is also unprecedented. We've never faced such a thing. We've never had a sitting president say they may not abide by the outcome of the results. Our nation is predicated upon democracy. If that democracy is looking to die on the vine, we need to take drastic action, all of us as Vermonters, in a nonpartisan way. This is not about Republicans. This is not about Democrats. This is not about progressives. This is about defending the very core principles of what it means to be a Vermonter and an American. Um, let's bring in a listener on the line. I believe Dan from Newfane's calling in. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. Hey, um, I just wanted to mention that you're right. There, are, there aren't that many union members in Vermont, but there are lots of people, and people are organizing to support a general strike already. In southern Vermont, we've organi- we're organizing a few different um, approaches, some of which will actually involve blocking infrastructure, which will help with the general strike. And I wrote an op-ed calling on people to seriously consider, you know, what we might have to do if a coup occurred, including barricading bridges, etc. And amazingly, um, a, a 88-year-old man wrote and said, "I'm in a wheelchair and I won't be blocking bridges, but I will pledge $20,000 to cover the costs of people who do decide to defend the country." And since that email has come in, we've now have over $32,000 pledged uh, to support people who are willing to. Um, put themselves at risk to defend the republic if there indeed is a coup. So it's organized labor is a really great catalyst for this, but there are lots of people who are in the wings trying to get themselves organized and will be there to support that general strike. Wow. Um, what about Dan? If um, if the if, if Trump were to win outright, or even you know win uh, a enough of a victory to do what he did in 2016, which was maybe lose the popular vote but win the electoral college, uh, all sort of legitimately under current law, what would what would happen? What do you think should happen then? Well, if he, if he truly legitimately won, you know, and uh, and it, it was, regardless of the popular vote, if, if if those electoral votes that he garnered are real and haven't been garnered by fraud, then I don't see that we we, we, we can't declare I don't I can't imagine that we would declare a general strike because something like a general strike really is only appropriate if it's something like David was saying, unprecedented like a coup. So we would have to resist four more years of Trump and do everything we could. But that would be a different it would be a different set of circumstances, and it would not require this. This is this is a big step, you know. Barricading bridges, general strike, you know, you don't do these things unless things have really, you know, gone off the edge, and and this is really preparatory preparation work to keep that from happening. So the the, the electoral college. Let, let me ask uh, Dave Dave this Dave Van Dusen of the AFL-CIO Vermont. This one. Um, 
The Electoral College, you said, uh, Dave, uh, in Pennsylvania, Republicans are considering uh, sending people to the Electoral College who may not reflect the actual popular vote outcome in their individual state. Now, normally what happens is the Electoral College, which is has been questioned in many quarters, it's a continued existence and so on, but normally what it does is it takes the popular vote result from a, g- a given state and then sends the slate of electors uh, who... Uh, who, who represent that, the party that w- won the popular vote in that state, and they send those folks to the Electoral College. Now, I guess, uh, theoretically under the law, it is possible for a state legislature to say, no, we're not going to send the uh, slate of electors representing the people who won the majority of our state. We are going to send the uh, slate of electors representing the people who represent the majority in our legislature. Um, and... And, and if that is allowed under current law, um, why should we uh, really well, protest Dave, that happening? Dave, yeah, because because throughout our history as a country, we have um, for a number of generations we became more democratic. There was a time when senators were not directly elected, for example. In our mm-hmm. contemporary history. It would be unprecedented for one party to send uh, opposing delegates to uh, the Electoral College that did not reflect the popular will of the voters in their states. If we're going to have any pretext of being a democracy, uh, then those uh, Electoral College delegates need to reflect the outcome of the elections in their state. If uh, a group of people, a party, manipulated that process... That would amount, in our minds, to a coup. And then things like a general strike would become appropriate. So we're not going to stop a coup by having a couple large protests. We need to disrupt capital. We need to shut down business as usual. We need to take extraordinary steps if we are going to defend uh, democracy in the United States of America. And we need to plan for that now. And even while we are organizing to defeat Trump at the polls, we still need to keep our eye on this possibility, and we need to be organizing now in order for us to be ready. And uh, I mean, let me let me zero in a little further on this idea of uh, of a state legislature uh, deciding that the electoral representation, the electoral college representation, will not reflect the popular vote in, the, in its state. Yeah. Which uh, sounds like it's a real, it's a possibility in some places, I guess, including Pennsylvania. Um, uh-huh. And I, I wonder whether the time to fix that or the time to address that wasn't sooner in terms of getting getting that law or that system changed and 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 basically have, having it required that that a, the electoral college in the electoral college representatives under state law in these states will represent the popular vote in that state. Um, did we miss an opportunity earlier on that we now are scrambling to correct? Well, yes. Yes, clearly clearly that should have been addressed, but we also should have abolished Electoral College uh, years ago, and we haven't. So getting things done in Washington, no surprise to listeners, is not always the easiest thing in the world. We have a great delegation. Bernie Sanders, Pat Leahy uh, do a very good job. But we haven't made the reforms that we need to to become a more democratic society. Now, what we need to do, uh, no matter what happens uh, after Election Day, 
we need to be talking about ways to institutionally safeguard uh, democracy and, in fact, to expand it. So eliminating, eliminating the Electoral College should be the direction we go. But that's Monday morning quarterbacking a bit. We have the context we have now, and we have to be ready to deal with that reality on November 4th. So after November 3rd, after all the votes are counted, let's make sure all the votes are counted. We need to have a clear winner. And that winner needs to assume office on Inauguration Day on January 20th. And if that does not happen, we will be in a constitutional crisis. Uh, The very soul of America will be at risk. And every Vermonter is going to have to step up and do everything they possibly can to resist an illegitimate uh, government if Trump uh, retains power while losing the election. But I think it's worth noting that in Pennsylvania, even though the majority of Pennsylvanians have been voting Democratic, they now have a Democratic governor, the redistricting that the Republicans controlled 10 years ago was so successful, they still have a, uh, an oversized share of the legislature, which does not resemble, actually represent their popular support. So Pennsylvania didn't have much an opportunity because the Republican Party in Pennsylvania does not, they want to have that option if they think they can get away with it. So... Um, we haven't really had the option of changing these rules, and in some places, states have actively um, fought them. I mean, look, look what some of the state Supreme Courts have done, like in Wisconsin, where you've got a, um, people trying to expand voting, and the Supreme Court is actually going against it. So we, we, sh- we it would have been good if we were prepared for this earlier, but um, this is so – we're not used to the idea of having to deal with coups in this country. Like, even though we're staring at us right. straight in the in, – in directly in the eyes – most people are still not really willing to say, "Oh, this is actually a possibility." They have, they have, our, we have this faith in our in our institutions, um, and that's there. Our institutions have been mightily challenged, and we risk them crumbling, and that's why we have to be prepared. All right, Dan, thank you for the call. I appreciate that. Um, let's go to uh, Sam in Williston. Good morning, Sam. Good morning. I'm, uh... I'm surprised, but I'm, I'm glad uh, your guest is speaking this way, telling everybody how this is going to go down. Um, I believe we're a republic, and I think we're supposed to operate as a republic. Uh, the uh, fact that we're losing our First Amendment rights right now in this country, uh, and we're going to go to one-party rule, it seems like this is what they want, is one-party rule. So... The minority will not be heard anymore, I guess, because it sounds like this is the way that the Democratic Party wants us to go, that uh, the Republican Party and other parties will be uh, sweeps to the side. Uh, you have uh, the former CIA, uh, former DOJ, uh, or Department of Justice. Uh, I think we had a rolling coup this whole last uh, three and a half years going on. So it's just a continuation of the coup that's going on now. Sam, thanks for the call. Uh, <laughs> David Van Dusen, what do you think of all that? Look, let's make a distinction right now. There's a difference between Donald Trump's National uh, Republican Party, which is increasingly neo-fascist, and the Vermont Republican Party. I have deep differences with many of the political positions of the Vermont Republican Party. But... Let's be clear. Our governor, Phil Scott, who is a Vermont Republican, um, agree with him or disagree with him. He has honor. He has principles. 
and it is a different party here than it in many ways than it is there. Uh, the Vermont AFL-CIO is not looking for uh, a blanket condemnation on one party, nor is our general strike vote about supporting the Democratic Party per se. It is not. This is about defending democracy, which is a very different thing. We want to work with all democracy-loving Vermonters to build a powerful resistance. We welcome Republicans in that in that camp. We welcome Democrats, and of course, we rec- uh, welcome progressives. So this is not partisan. This is about democracy. And I understand you were actually on a national call with other labor leaders last evening. I'm wondering what you're hearing about what might happen in other states. Are they are they looking the same way? Look, I was on a call last night with 99 significant labor leaders from all across the United States last night talking about how we need to defend the outcome of the election. Um, You name it. Chicago teachers uh, were on, uh, Los Angeles teachers. You'll remember from the recent strikes they both had. Sarah Nelson, uh, president of Flight Attendance Union, was on the call. There's a number of central labor councils across the country, some very significant, that have passed resolutions in support of a general strike should there be a coup. Uh, it's clear that all that unions all across the United States of America are mobilizing and getting ready uh, for defending the vote come July, uh, come November fourth. So yes, this is taking shape. Many of our unions are focused on winning the election, obviously, mm-hmm. but attention is increasingly turning to how we will defend the outcome uh, after the votes are all counted. So I expect there to be. Mass protests, mass demonstrations, work stoppages all across the country if the outcome, uh, if Trump seeks to steal the outcome. And let me ask you, let me, let me sort of pull the lens back to within Vermont's borders and ask you among your rank and file members in places like the, you know, the carpenters union and the electricians union and the teachers union and et cetera, uh, Are, are, are you, is this broadly supported or is this something that, uh, I mean, how, 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 uh, has this been put to a vote of the various unions, uh, individually, uh, up to now and, and tell us about that. Good question. So in our press release, we are very pleased to have Tim Bombard, uh, president of the Vermont Building Trades, uh, say very clearly that we must all stand together in the event of a coup and that now is the time for all of labor to come together. But we want to practice what we preach. Democracy is important uh, as a society, but it's also important internally within labor. So we will be holding, asking our members to vote on authorizing a strike at our convention on November 21st. We are organizing now uh, with the assumption that that vote will pass because we, the clock is ticking and we need to organize immediately. But ultimately, it will be an authorization vote of the members themselves. So I'd be happy to come back after that. Uh, hopefully this isn't necessary. Hopefully there is not a coup, and hopefully we have clarity about the outcome of the election mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on November 21st. But if that's not the case, uh, we'll be ready to go. We've also been talking with political figures from around the state. We've reached out to the governor's office, uh, offered to meet with him. We've been speaking with city councilors in different uh, larger important communities. And I want to make clear that if it comes to uh, defending democracy, if there is a coup, we will look to work with state and local leaders in order to coordinate these efforts uh, to build a popular front where possible. 
and to seek to maintain core public services. You know, we, we have no interest in shutting down water okay, plants, just, waste just, water plants and things like this. Just a minute uh, or so to go. Um, and when... Uh so this vote will be November twenty first at your convention, and then um, I gather that 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 then it could proceed if if uh, if there is a positive vote there. Is that right? That's right. If politics demands, we'll call for a strike. Uh, listen, okay. We rely on a large demonstration on November seventh at noon at the State House to defend democracy. I encourage all listeners, all democracy to attend. Okay. Uh, Got to get uh, David Van Dusen of the AFL-CIO. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. Let's uh, hope n- none of this has to come to pass. Top of the hour, CBS News coming in a conversation with our friend Bob Nay. And uh, Dave Zuckerman joins us in the second hour. Stay with us, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We are back and uh, continuing into our second hour. Thanks for staying with us this morning, folks. We're going to be talking with uh, Dave Zuckerman, the uh, Democratic nominee for Lieutenant Governor, a little bit later in this hour. Uh, wrapping up our week week long efforts to get our uh, top candidates for. The top two state offices on, we had Molly Gray yesterday, Democratic nominee for Lieutenant Governor. Earlier in the week, Scott Millen joined us. He was the Republican nominee for the number two slot. And uh, today, Dave Zuckerman, haven't been able to uh, wrangle uh, Governor Scott onto the show uh, this week, unfortunately, but uh, just uh, scheduling issues, I imagine. It's uh, always a busy, busy time, for, especially for an incumbent who's trying to do the work of the office and run for re-election at the same time. That's uh, that is a, uh, a lot on the plate, and so I uh, understand what the situation might be there. But uh, that's just the way it goes. So anyway, uh, we will be uh, speaking with a Democratic nominee for governor a little bit later in this half hour or in this hour actually. And uh, uh, meanwhile, we're hoping that uh, Bob Nay will be joining us shortly. Our regular Friday. National correspondent, and uh, he, uh, well, I'm sure we'll have some interesting things to say in his last visit with us before this election season closes on November 3rd, Tuesday. It is, uh, it's both, uh, it's kind of a weird time because it feels like time is traveling uh, really, really rapidly in, in some ways, but really, really slowly in terms of the anticipation building toward trying to figure out what is going to happen politically in our country over the next uh, four years and uh, how uh, the United States might uh, might pursue its uh, its future course here. So uh, meanwhile, as we wait for Bob, happy to open the phone lines and hear if any listeners have any thoughts they'd like to share about the... Uh, the last half hour was a pretty striking conversation with uh, Dave Van Dusen of the, uh, of the AFL... CIO in Vermont uh, calling for a general strike if there is what he's calling a coup, meaning a uh, uh, the uh, so uh, let's uh, let's see is Bob Nay with us now actually? 
Do we have Hello. Bob Nay? Hey, Bob, how you doing? Hey, good. How are you? I am doing all right. Uh, so I think you let off, as you usually do, with the uh, the coronavirus situation in your headlines this morning. Uh, what's the latest? Well, globally, uh, there are uh, total deaths of 1,179,000 approximately. That's globally. And the United States has 228,636 deaths. Um, so it statistically remained the same. Of course, there's more cases now because there's more testing. So, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of a, a fact. Yeah. Um, I'm hearing that there is actually a decline in mortality as, as doctors uh, come up with um, more uh, consistent and better uh, methods of treating this disease. Is that, uh, is that a real thing? Is that showing up in the, st- in the statistics pretty well? Does you know there's the mortality rate? Uh, I'm not going to say is isn't as high as they thought it would be because they thought a lot of things in the beginning, you know, and yeah, yeah, it's something new. But the mortality rate definitely, uh, you know, has went to the better side of things. But I think it is because of you know some different medicine. I sat down with a doctor actually, Dave, last Sunday for a couple of hours, who I've known for a long time, and he's he's unbiased, you know, about a lot of things, and. Uh, it was very interesting because he talked about treatments, certain treatments, what it does, what you have to do if you catch it early, you know. So there's a lot more I think they know, which is obviously helping out. Hmm. And um, work proceeds, of course, uh, including here in Vermont, uh, our, our biggest hospital, University of Vermont Medical Center, just got selected this week for a phase three, vac- uh, phase three vaccine to be a phase three vaccine testing site for a product being uh, brought out by uh, AstraZeneca. And um, I, um, what, what's your best estimate on when we're expecting to uh, have people start lining up for a vaccine? Well, it's very interesting because uh, before I get to that, what's the interesting part from the states is they said that right now, you know, they've got, uh, they're building a tent. They don't have the tent, but they've got the, the stakes that hold up the tent. And what they're talking about is they want money now, which is interesting because they, like a lot of people, from what I've read, are anticipating a rollout, uh, probably an announcement soon and a rollout in the spring of some type of vaccine. So what they're saying is the states, you can't wait till it rolls out. We don't know when, March, April, May, they think. Uh, so to answer your question, that's when they think it'll be. But they've got to prepare the whole process now and spend the money up front to get everything ready. Otherwise, it would take you know considerable amount of time to get the vaccine out to the people. Yeah, and um, let's uh, shift to uh, obviously we have this little thing coming up in three days or four days uh, called an election election day, uh, and you uh, you make reference here to a real clear politics poll. What are we seeing? Well. One that I look at quite a lot because real the real clear politics poll will go ahead and include, uh, frankly, you know, other uh, poll services, which is what I kind of like about it. But here, here's a kind of a bottom line about it: um, in Florida, uh, Trump versus Biden, and this is by a group called uh, Trafalgar Group, and uh, they've got Trump up by three. And then in Nevada, they've got Biden up by two. Those are kind of key states. And then overall, it jumps all across the board nationally, general election. Some up Biden by four, uh, Biden by eight, 
Biden by one, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you jump to Michigan, it's got Trump up by uh, two in one of the polls, and also it's got Trump up by one in uh, an Iowa poll. So having said that, real clear is daily, you know, doing this. I actually, ta- I actually talked to a pollster up in uh, Columbus, Ohio, with a large firm, and they're like hourly looking at everything. So mm-hmm. I um, looked at the electoral map, and I came up with 200, and uh, this is for today. It's not a, you know, four years ago we predicted, I predicted a week out. It was easy. Uh, right now I've got today, if the election were held, 273 votes for Biden electoral. He needs 270, and Trump 265. But that's giving Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania to Biden. If any one of those four states change, I think that 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 would make it that would uh, make it uh, Trump's election to the presidency. So I'm just kind of waiting until Monday to just see more. Plus, Dave, I call people up in these states, kind of key leaders, to see you know see their opinions too. I don't just look at the polls, but yep. very influx for those states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've got to say I'm I'm a little surprised that it's this close because uh, I mean I sort of figured I think a lot of people would expect a close election just because the country is so divided and so on. Um, but when you, if you sort of start out assuming a, a close election, and then you add this pandemic and uh, and the and the president's management of the pandemic, which has been pretty widely criticized, uh, you would think that that would really tip the map or the you know anything that was in play at all toward the Democrat challenger. Um, and yet, uh, I mean, talk to us about why it's still this close, given. Uh, given, you know, the sort of background of what's been going on. Well, and I'm going to probably say something that's going to anger some people, but this generic broad brush that I hear a lot from friends, you know, because I talk to both sides, I have friends both sides of the aisle, activists both sides of the aisle. Some of them understand the puzzle I call pieces. Some of them don't. And when they just say, well, it's just the hard-lined Trump people, you know, he can shoot somebody in Manhattan, what? It goes a little bit beyond that, because I have friends of mine who are Republican, former statewide Republican office holders, who have turned on Trump publicly, publicly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Petro of Ohio, longtime Republican, turned on him yep. in, the, in the newspaper. So having said that, if you look at Biden's support, 59 percent of Biden's support was what I would call anti-Trump support. In other words, there are people that like Biden, they like him, but they, you know, wouldn't march into a furnace for him, you know. Yeah. They don't. They really don't like Trump. So when you start to look at factors, that makes people kind of wobble back and forth. And there's people that are, you know, also doing that variable on Trump, Republicans included. So I just think it's, you know, the fact that you've got <laughs> two older candidates, um, and you know, if it was another candidate, if this was Barack Obama, you know. Uh, yeah. I think you and I'd be having a totally different conversation, and so it's not just the Trump, Trumpster, diehard, what forever Trump people. Yes, that's fact, part of it, and people supporting Biden's part of it. There's just a kind of back and forth here, and uncertainty, and I don't think people are, in general, for the most part, 
the wide variety of moderate Americans aren't happy with either candidate. Because you would expect, after all of Trump has done and said, that he would be, you know, 15 points down. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, this is what what you're saying. This is what has me scratching my head, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, and I keep hearing that uh, the senior voters are much softer on, you know, they were very strong for Trump last time, much softer this time, in, you know, in large part because of the coronavirus. Uh, suburban women are, are allegedly, you know, fed up with a lot of his outbursts and, you know, telling four, four members of Congress to go back where they came from and all the rest of it. Uh, and, 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 you know, you see all of that and hear all of that, and, and then you look and you go, gee whiz, Trump might win. <laughs> I, so I, I went. I saw a receptionist uh, two weeks ago at an eye uh, eye doctor's place, and she said, "You know, yeah." She said, "I know you know Joe Biden personally." I said, "Yes." She said, "What's he like?" I said, "Nice guy. He is a nice guy." And mm-hmm. those foreign affairs, et cetera. And she said, "You know, I I, I really in general say I like you, but I don't like Republicans. I know this lady." She said, "And I think Trump's just been horrible." But she said, "I'm voting for him," and I about passed out. Wow. And I said, "Can I ask you why?" And she, so she's not like just, and she's not a racist or anything. She said, "I'm afraid of maybe he will yield to people that want to burn things down." Hmm. Like, okay, I've heard that several times, you know, because that's been put out there, you know, the Antifa uh, yeah. uh, group and things. And so, you know, there's wide reasons. I'm not saying that's the general reason, but you know, there's an uncertainty out there by a lot of people. And uh, I don't think it has to do with race. Um, I don't think it's got to do with being a diehard this or that. I just think a lot of people aren't happy with either candidate in general. All right. Well, Bob Nay, I guess uh, there you go. Let's uh, let's see what happens. We'll talk again next Friday. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. I want to uh, wrap it up with a listener who's been patiently waiting on the line about some previous stuff on the show this morning. Let's go to Bill in East Montpelier. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Dave. Love your show. Thank you very much for taking my call. Sure. Um, as far as the union person that was just on, um, I'm wondering your thoughts and Mr. Zuckerman's thoughts about the comments that he made as far as it almost sounds like he's leading toward voter intimidation. Did I take that the wrong way? What do you think and what does Mr. Zuckerman think about what he said? Well, let me let me get your explanation first a little bit. What, what do you mean by voter intimidation? What's uh, what what uh, if things don't if things don't go the way that that union rep was mentioning that what they plan on doing and have a vote and have you know what they call a strike or quote unquote coup attempt, um, that that kind of goes toward voter intimidation. And to be honest, if the unions want to put together some kind of almost retaliation, that's that's not really the Vermont way, and that's not what Vermonters stand for. Yeah, I think what he was talking about is in the event that the election goes off the rail in a couple different ways. One is that... Uh, you know the let's let's just say for a moment that that it looks like Joe Biden is the clear winner by the vote count we haven't we haven't had an electoral college or or let's say the vote count is is um is called off early uh by the US Supreme Court including somebody Trump just appointed this week to the US Supreme Court 
Um, and you know, it is, it, it, it looks like to a majority of Americans, remember, let's, let's assume in this case, in this scenario, that Biden has won the popular vote. It looks to the majority of, uh, Americans like the, like it, it we're going to have a, a blatantly unfair outcome, which does not result from either the popular vote or even the way it looks like the electoral college map is going, but results instead from a court decision or, or results from states which suddenly decide we are not going to send the electors to the electoral college whom the people of our state voted for. We're going to actually send the, ele- the electors we prefer, and those happen to be, let's say, the Republican electors. And you basically, uh, we will flip the bird to the people of our state and, uh, uh, and, and go that way just because we really want a certain outcome here. Um, if those things come to pass, I, I, I asked him, I said, well, if Trump wins outright, if he wins the popular vote, or if he wins, you know, a clear and sort of normal victory on the Electoral College map, uh, are you guys going to be okay with that? And he, and he said, yeah, we'd have to accept that, basically. Um, uh, unhappy for sure, but I said, you know, that, so I don't think he's really talking about just any outcome that he displeases him. Resulting in a general strike, but uh, that's uh, at least that's my understanding of the of, the, of what uh, Dave Van Dusen of the AFL-CIO uh, was saying. Yeah, Does that help? And as far as his comments about, and as far as his comments about, well, we need to organize people and shut stuff down. We're having a hard enough time with COVID. Why would we want to do that? I mean, you you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I get you. It's scary. Yeah, let's hope none of it comes to pass. Absolutely, and I don't think that's the Vermont way. That's not what us Vermonters stand for. We're not going to – I don't believe that we should be doing any of that stuff, whether you're a union member or not a union member. We should all band together and say, well, if this is the way it is, let people figure it out. We still need to work. We still need to function, and let's carry on with our normal day, and we'll figure it out instead of this let's shut everything down and people need to walk off the job and we need to close roads. That, to me, does not strike me as how Vermonters should be acting and how we should get through all of this. Everybody's talking about we need to stick together, we need to stick together. Well, in instances like this, we need to stick together, and we need to not shut everything down, and we need to band together and say, how do we, how do we fix it without damaging what's already been damaged? Okay, Bill, I gotta go, but thank you for the call. I, I think you stated it uh, quite clearly and well, and thank you very much. Let's go to, uh, let's go to our next guest. Uh, we have <laughs> waiting in the wings here. Uh, David Zuckerman is the current Lieutenant Governor of Vermont. He has, uh, held that position since uh, 2016, uh, 2017, I guess, first elected in 2016, and, uh, he uh, joins us now on the phone to talk about the shape of the campaign with uh, four days or so to go. Uh, to Dave Zuckerman, welcome to the Dave Graham Show, and thank you very much for joining us. Oh, Dave, it's a pleasure to be here. And, and I think, Bill, you know, raise an interesting point, though, just real quick. Uh, yeah. You know, I do think Vermonters normally do things in a very measured and respectful way, uh, but I also think that if a president starts to act more like a dictator uh, and a party starts to rule with sort of powers beyond the intention of the Constitution and the intention of our system, uh, there may or may not come a point where people need to rise up in a more um, peaceful but aggressive way uh, because 
you know, this president has really destroyed the norms, and actually Mitch McConnell, the norms of the institutions of democracy that I think people in our state greatly value. I mean, in the Senate, we have uh, six Republicans out of 30, and, of course, we appointed one of them as a chair and another as a vice chair of a committee, uh, and they got appointments that they wanted. You know, we do do things in a much more rational, nonpartisan, use everyone for their strengths kind of way, um, but sometimes the nice way uh, has ended up getting railroaded, uh, certainly by this president, Mitch McConnell, in terms of following the norms of the institution. And so I think the idea of what David Van Dusen's talking about is a little bit more of, you know, if they're going to railroad the norms to the point of stealing an election for president, that, uh, yes, many of us could go along with our lives in a normal way, but many others' lives are being impacted much more great in a much greater way. If the court overturns marriage equality or, as they already have, voting rights and civil rights uh, for people of color, that's hard for those folks to carry on their lives in a normal way. So for some of us, we have the privilege to do that, but we also have to stand up for those that don't. And so would you support a uh, general strike in the event of, let's say, the election being turned by this Pennsylvania scenario in which the uh, legislature sends electors to the Electoral College to vote uh, contrary to the popular vote within their own state? Well, I'm I'm certainly hopeful, and it looks like maybe this election will not be so close that they would be able to do that. Uh, but if they do, uh, I do think we all have to explore what do we do to restore decency to our democracy and not let one state and one minority party who is gerrymandered to have a majority in the legislature uh, suddenly dictate the outcome for the whole country. That is not how this um, situation was designed. In fact, you know, the majority of people did not vote for this president the first time. But the way the system was designed with the Electoral College, which we could go into deep discussion about that, uh, the race has passed from that uh, with respect to more votes for the South than, than maybe they were warranted. But, uh, but if, you know, they won, and many of us were upset, but we didn't steal the election back, we didn't disrupt the system, um, you know, the Electoral College is what it is. But if one state were to hijack the election or one small minority party, <laughs> with, but in the majority of positions, were to steal the election, I do think we have to think seriously about what do we do to make sure democracy is restored. And in terms of that, what do we do? Um, I mean, it sounds like there's a pretty clear idea in the leadership of the Vermont AFL-CIO. That's Uh, one idea. That's one idea, and we have to have these conversations and and explore it when the time comes. I mean, I'd like to see more leadership right now from our current governor. Uh, He and I debated, and he said, well, he's spoken out more against this president than any other Republican, and I, I look to our state to the south, Charlie Baker, who's under Twitter attack from the president, and I say, well, uh, current governor, if you were the most aggressive uh, Republican in office at challenging this president at his attacks on our institutions, you would probably be getting a, a Twitter attack from the governor, uh, from the president. But, uh, you know, our governor's done a really good job of gently pushing back, creating no change in this president and forming no leadership in the reasonable Republicans who could form a vocal voice as the Lincoln Project has, as have many others, uh, to really push back against this president. And it hasn't happened. So I do think we need leadership, whether it's from the workers, whether it's from people across the state, uh, whether it's people from all parties, to really push back against this president's uh, 
you know, absurd takeover of government in a way that, and use of power in government, which is really where the abuse is, uh, to um, push back on the situation. Just one more question on this, and we gotta go, gotta go to a bottom of the hour break. But I, I want to ask you, David. Um, it, it, one thing I think we've learned over time is that the uh, institutions of American democracy, the sort of separation of powers we think of, you know, we learn about in school between, say, the executive and the, and the legislative and the judicial branches, et cetera, all the way things normally operate, the independence of the of the Justice Department. All of these things kind of depend on the behaviors of the people who are playing on the on the uh, you know on the court, let's say, on the on the field or whatever it is. Um, and are they are they too fragile? Are the people too fragile, or is no? Are the systems too fragile? Are the is the is the, no, the way it's built? I think the system. I don't think the system is too fragile. I do think this is the most serious test of the system that has happened in the 200 plus years of our yeah. Hey, uh, let, we do need to campaign in a minute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's talk about your campaign. And when we get back from the uh, bottom of the hour break here on uh, WDEV FM and AM, we'll be back shortly, folks. With the Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. I feel like I'm uh, recovering from whiplash here after that second half-hour conversation with Dave Van Dusen of the, uh, of the AFL-CIO talking about a possible general strike in the face of a coup. Yikes. Uh, and uh, But I want to be fair to our Democratic nominee for governor here as well, so I'm going to go right to Dave Zuckerman now and say, hey, Dave, tell us why uh, you're running and what are the key differences between you and the incumbent governor, uh, Phil Scott. Well, I, I think one of the biggest differences, uh, no ideas for the future from this current governor versus various ideas and vision for how we can build our economy out of this COVID crisis, put people to work, uh, you know, whether it's weatherizing people's homes, stringing broadband, building affordable housing, uh, you know, getting folks back to work uh, is really a key piece of this, and it's going to take innovative and creative ideas. Uh, you know, there's a real difference between this governor indicating to do a budget that's going to be relatively flatlined, possibly slight increases, uh, depending on the uh, revenues of the state, when we have a rainy day fund that's, that's here for this purpose, to make sure we don't cut and slash programs that are critical to struggling Vermonters. We have a tripling of the number of people requesting heating assistance. We have tens of thousands of people on unemployment whose unemployment benefits are going to be running out uh, and really going to be struggling through the winter. And I haven't really seen or heard much in the way of this governor's actions to address these upcoming major issues. He's uh, he's always made up a, uh, a, a central part of his pitch uh, helping the most vulnerable. Um, and here we are in a time when the numbers of the most vulnerable seem to be increasing uh, because of all the people being displaced by this coronavirus pandemic, uh, and and yet. There's some limit to what the state can spend to help the most vulnerable. I mean, where do you where do you draw the line here? 
Well, there's a couple things. Let's be clear about his words about taking care of the most vulnerable versus his budgets over the last many years. He's talked about cutting education uh, and stopping uh, the growth in education by changing the, the ratios of, of school faculty to students. Well, many of those school faculty are paraeducators helping young kids that are coming from struggling situations get caught up in their education so they have a greater opportunity in the future. Those folks are vulnerable. He wanted to pass changes to our education laws that were going to uh, challenge those supports for those kids. Uh, he's proposed budgets that we're going to cut support funding for primary care doctors locating in our rural areas. You know, rural folks are having an incredibly hard time accessing primary health care. His budget was going to cut that. So he has said these things for years and years, but his actions have often not matched his words. Folks with severe physical disabilities, we're going to see their programs cut in terms of support for them to be living at home uh, at one point under this governor. So let's make sure we don't sort of just give him too much credit for his words versus his actions. When it comes to drawing a line in this moment, uh, I think it's really important to say, okay, what are the needs that are out there? Our state law says that a budget is first supposed to have a needs assessment, and then you figure out, okay, we have all these needs. They're greater than our resources. How do we either meet those needs or not meet those needs, but let's be transparent about it? And if we need more resources, how would we raise them or should we raise them? And that's the conversation we should be having with the general public. But when people think everybody's basic needs, those who are vulnerable, are being met, and they're actually not, then I think it's, it's a bit of a snow job. Let's talk about uh, some environmental issues for a moment and ask uh, about the Global Warming Solutions Act, for instance. Uh, obviously, the governor uh, vetoed that and then uh, saw that overridden. Uh, what... what um, what would tell us about your support for the Global Warming Solutions Act and and whether you uh, you know share concerns that there that there will could be uh, too much damage to our economy from some of the results of that? Well, no, I I fully support the Global Warming Solutions Act. It holds politicians and elected officials accountable for their words, much like I was just talking about, where words don't really matter, actions do. And we've set goals uh, to look like we're going to do something. Uh, the governor even said, I'm going to push back against the president, and we're going to follow the Paris Accord when it comes to emissions, yet our emissions are up. So I think it's really important that all of us in elected office, doesn't matter right, left, or center, uh, are held accountable for our words, and the Global Warming Solutions Act is going to do that. The other piece that the governor said about the Global Warming Solutions Act that I think is a bit of a misnomer is this giving up of power. You know, we have boards across the state that have far more power than this panel does. Uh, we have the Green Mountain Care Board that regulates all of the costs of our medical care. Uh, they approve increases to our medical expenses all the time. That's not done through legislation. It's not done through the governor. It's through the appointments. We have the Utilities Commission, which has made drastic changes to our energy policies that have cut 500 jobs over the last five years in solar installation. Those are appointments that the governor made, so he should be held accountable, but also it's a board with authority and power outside of the legislature. And, and, of course, the governor seemed to say that this board was somehow granting authority outside of the administration when we've had other boards that have done very similar things, if not more so. Um, but also, finally, with respect to the climate, I think there's real job opportunities in tackling the climate crisis. We have job opportunities in building jobs around weatherization, 
jobs that don't require a college education. We could put everyday folks to work who have been struggling uh, after high school to get a good job. They could be weatherizing far more people's homes. That would be saving working-class Vermonters money, saving fixed-income Vermonters money. We could be putting people to work stringing broadband. Broadband is a climate change solution. It would help people be able to commute from home a day or two a week, cutting down our driving miles, which is a huge emitter of carbon, and it could increase jobs and opportunities in our rural areas to make good money uh, through Internet jobs, whether it's architecture or accounting, whether it's marketing or bookkeeping. Uh, it could be design. Uh, there's just many, many jobs that one could do in part from home if we had good Internet. Uh, so I think the climate crisis is something we can do and address both by creating jobs and reducing our carbon footprint. Let's talk about broadband and sort of the, the economic model underpinning it. Uh, oh, you know, 30 years ago now or so, we started hearing a lot of talk about public-private partnerships. That was sort of a buzzword beginning, say, in the 1990s, uh, and certainly that was the model on which the idea was built that we were going to have large uh, telecom uh, companies, national companies come into Vermont and, and use a lot of government money to uh, build out our networks uh, hasn't really happened to, in a complete way so far. I don't think anybody would say it has. Uh, meanwhile, uh, these, this new uh, model comes up, the communications union district, a little bit more of a, of a, of a public model. Should the state go all in on the, on the CUD model or should we still be pushing the public private partnerships or, uh, where do you come down on that? Well, a lot of those public-private partnerships have ended up squandering millions of public taxpayer dollars. And I get that a lot of folks think that the private enterprise way is a solution, and, and even in the sort of neoliberal model, there's a lot of these partnership ideas. Uh, but in this case, uh, it was squandered money uh, and an opportunity that was really missed. And I do like the communication union districts. There's another possibility through the utilities and the fact that they already have you know, uh, strung lines to just about every household except for those that are off the grid. Uh, so maybe there's a possibility to do it through the regulated utilities. Uh, but either model um, would have far more uh, oversight of our government dollars. Uh, but also when you look at the, the model of the past when it came to rural electrification and rural telecommunication, the capitalist model doesn't get phone lines and electricity to the last mile or 10 miles because it doesn't make economic sense to do so. And the government came in and funded telephones to the last mile, electricity to the last mile, roads to the hinterlands. This is a real conversation about what is the role of our society as a whole to make sure everybody has basic utilities and economic opportunities, or whether we just do truly complete, quote, rugged individualism and let the folks at the end of the line kind of wither on the vine, too bad for you. And I happen to believe that we have to look at broadband as the next telecommunication and electrification issue. We've got to get it built out, and I think the communication union districts are a good start because they can leverage municipal bonds, which have an extremely low interest rate. We can then supplement that with some state money to then leverage federal dollars to get broadband into rural areas, and we can really start to tackle this challenge. Uh, in a recent debate, the governor said, you know, we, it's just too expensive to do it. We can't do it. Um, I think that's not really a Vermont attitude. A Vermont attitude is we can do it. We can do it frugally and efficiently, uh, but we have to get this done 
So let's sit down and figure out how. And no, it's not going to happen overnight. But if we start investing now, we'll be one step closer than if we put it off for another year. Vermont has a legal requirement that every uh, school-aged child uh, can be afforded an education. That's uh, sort of a, uh, that's considered to be a state duty. Now, obviously, we have private schools and we have uh, parochial schools and others uh, other ways to go about it. But the bottom line is, you always have an opportunity to go to school if you're a kid in Vermont because state law requires the state to offer that service, and that goes right down to, from what I understand, the idea of transportation, of actually having a school bus go down the, the most rural road in the state sometimes. Um, and now we are uh, apparently going to be, for some some foreseeable future, um, having some of our education system built upon access to broadband by households scattered all across the hills of Vermont. Uh, does that up the stakes here in terms of, I mean, does, do we now, are we now closer to required to, to provide broadband to everyone uh, because of the educational mission it's carrying? Well, certainly, uh, I would think, uh, just as with the Brigham case, someone could probably bring a lawsuit and say their child is not getting an equal education or an equal opportunity at education because we don't have uh, quality broadband to all corners of the state. Now, how long that court case would take versus how soon we're going to be able to be in person again, uh, you know, is, is another matter. But the COVID pandemic has certainly revealed uh, the great schism in our society, both in terms of broadband and access to education for our kids and for some of those teachers to teach, particularly in really remote rural areas, uh, but also other economic schisms that have really been in existence, but have nobody's really been able to talk about it enough or address them directly enough uh, through the model that we've had, you know, for the past 10, 20 years. Uh, ever since Reaganomics and trickle-down economics, which has completely failed, uh, rural areas and, uh, you know, machinery and equipment and manufacturing has really dwindled in rural areas by moving much of that economy overseas. Uh, we have not seen our governments step in and say, well, if we're going to favor companies to move those businesses overseas, uh, then maybe we need to come up with another way for all of us as a society to build an economic structure that does benefit everyone and doesn't leave so many people behind. In terms of the uh, economic schisms uh, that exist and have been really pointed up by the coronavirus pandemic, um, one, of course, uh, relates to health care. Uh, we see a Absolutely. lot of people losing their losing Absolutely. their jobs and they maybe had employed, employed, employer-sponsored health care. Should we uh, try again at what uh, uh, Governor Shumlin tried and failed to do in the uh, mid-teens? Well, I think, uh, again, this pandemic has really revealed that it's good while you got it, but what happens when you don't? And how tenuous is this system? And uh, I saw a great video that Bernie put together quoting uh, Donald Trump himself, talking about having some of the best medicine in the world at Walter Reed Medical Center, which is a 100% socialist medicine system government-run, government-paid-for, and it's some of the best health care out there. Uh, so here you have one of the most capitalist-espousing presidents we've ever had. He happens also to be a lot of other things, that are words I probably shouldn't say on the radio. Uh, but there he gets the, some of the best medicine in the world, and yet he rails on socialized medicine. You know, if we had a universal system, uh, nobody would be at jeopardy of losing their health care when they lose their job in a downturn. Uh, what I'd like to see us do, whether it's fully go back to uh, the Shumlin attempts, uh, you know, I think that's a, a laudable goal to get there someday as a universal health care system. 
But in my administration, we would start by working towards a universal primary care system. We would support getting primary care doctors and offices all over the state with our state dollars to make sure people have that primary and preventative care that really does drive down health care costs. Because if you have regular checkups or if you start to feel ill and you go in immediately to get tested for things, we often can find illness much, much earlier uh, and therefore have a much lower cost remedy and a much better outcome for the individual. Uh, we've talked to small and medium-sized employers who are doing this for their employees, and they are saving money on their insurance premiums by offering universal primary care to their employees, and they're saving productivity because they're seeing fewer employee workdays missed because, again, those folks get healthier faster. So let's start by trimming, the, getting the low-hanging fruit, move in that direction, save money, and then work to expand health care with those savings. And, and I want—I did want to ask you about the future of the Vermont State Colleges because that's obviously been a huge issue this year. Uh, what needs to happen there? Well, a number of things need to happen, and I'm glad the legislature at least started with the first key piece, which was bridge funding to get the state colleges through this year with uh, a planning process to either reconfigure, restructure, think about the programs and the layout of these campuses in terms of how we're going to attract students, keep students here, uh, fill the dorms with more kids both in and out of state to make the economic circumstances better for these state colleges, as well as we have to look and find what is going to be a better long-term funding source because we do uh, quite underfund our state colleges with respect to uh, our positioning and compared to anywhere else in the country uh, in terms of the needs they have in order to keep tuition down low enough that Vermonters can afford to go there. But we have to keep them open. Uh, it was clear when the chancellor made his proposal. Uh, you know, I've been in office, state rep, senator, lieutenant governor, for 22 years, and I have never in those 22 years seen as quick a public response uh, to an issue as happened when the chancellor said those three institutions were going to close. I can't remember if it was 20 or 30,000 Vermonters in about 10 days signed petitions saying keep them open. We know that these state colleges are both the hope and opportunity for a lot of young Vermonters finishing high school as well as uh, attractants for folks from out of state who come here, go to school, and then live here after that. And if there's one demographic I think just about everybody knows, we are having a hard time uh, either attracting or keeping young folks here, 20s, 30s, and 40s, to raise their families, to fill the jobs that before the pandemic Many employers couldn't find the workforce to fill their jobs. So we need to make sure we keep the state colleges thriving. We also need to make sure we expand the opportunity for our high schoolers to go to technical uh, schools in high school. We have a shortage of plumbers and electricians in this state. Not everyone has to go to college. There are a lot of economic opportunities without a college degree, but we need to make sure people have the skills and training for those other jobs as well. And some of that has to do with the funding formula and how schools lose money if they send kids to technical schools. We've got to really dig into that issue and tackle that as well. But education is, is really the opportunity for our youth's future. All right. Well, uh, uh, I'm sad to say we are about out of time here on the Dave Graham Show and WDEV, FM, and AM. Dave Zuckerman, uh, candidate uh, nominee of the Democratic Party for governor of Vermont, uh, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Well, I appreciate it. I hope folks that haven't voted still go vote. You can bring your ballot in today. Some clerks are open tomorrow. They're open on Monday. 
or you can bring him in in person on, on Tuesday. If you have any questions, please reach out to ZuckermanFORVT.com. That's ZuckermanForVermont.com. And, uh, Dave, I appreciate all the times you've had me on, and I look forward to being on again. Alrighty, Great. Thanks again. Hey, uh, stay tuned for Governor Phil Scott's uh, press conference with other top state officials on the state's coronavirus uh, response. And uh, that's about it for our show today. We'll talk to you all on Monday. Have a good weekend, everybody.